This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. After a week off for Thanksgiving, we're back. I'm your host, Mike Petriello. Joining me here, Matt Myers, MLB.com national editor. Matt, welcome back from your vacation. How are you? I'm well. I'm excited to be back and uh, do, the, do the show again and yeah. talk some hot stove and some... The hot, the hot stuff actually got moving. Cespedes signed yeah. for what I thought was actually a pretty fair deal. Four years, $110 million? I mean, You can't really argue with that. No, not at all. Um, you know, it's weird because in a weird way, he fits the Mets perfectly in that they need sort of an impact right-hand hitting bat. At the same time, they sort of have, he's sort of an imperfect fit because they have all these corner outfielders. But um, on a four-year deal, on a win-now team... I think it, 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 it made sense. Yes, absolutely. And you're not paying him until he's 38, 39, 40, which has been a problem. But I like it because it kind of gets the outfield market moving a little bit, right, as the winter meetings come up next week. Uh, and so I think the biggest name on the block potentially right now is Andrew McCutcheon. You know, we've been hearing about this for a couple weeks. Uh, and just this morning, I think Kevin Rosenthal reported that it seems more likely than not he'll be traded. So I think that's, that's pretty interesting. But, you know, what's interesting is what is Andrew McCutcheon at this point, right? He was a superstar for a number of years. Uh, and this last season, not one of his best, and especially on defense. If you look at his defense, negative 28 defensive runs saved. So if you consider uh, roughly 10 runs being equal to a win, that stat says he cost them three wins just with defense alone. And uh, that's we can talk about what that really means, but that's pretty damning, right? Yeah, and I think, I mean, we, we talked about this earlier in the year about how the Pirates, because they had a lot of ground ball pitcher, the ground ball pitchers who were more likely to allow low line drives. That the Pirates had this idea that they would bring their outfielders in, specifically McCutcheon. He played amongst the shallowest. Ah, uh, yeah, he was. Uh, I believe we have him as like the third shallowest outfielder this year, or something like that. And that seemed to really hurt hurt his numbers. Yeah, it, it's it could not have backfired worse because the Pirates' pitching staff just didn't cooperate. They were not the same ground ball heavy team that they were. Uh, Clint Hurdle actually talked to Adam Berry, who is our Pirates.com beat reporter, and he said, as the staff played out, it didn't match up to the analytics off the mound we were looking to work with. So now we have some thoughts on how to adjust. And so I think that's interesting because we've talked a lot about the Cubs and how they moved Dexter Fowler back because they didn't want all the extra base hits to go over his head. And Dexter Fowler's numbers went up. He went up by like 12 runs this year. And he's been a fine outfielder. I don't think he actually got that much better. I think he was just put in position to look better. McCutcheon, I think it's it's two things. One is he was not put in position to look better. I also think, you know, he wasn't hitting well. He probably wasn't healthy the whole year. There's probably a little bit of truth to the fact that he just wasn't a good outfielder. But it's a combination of those two things, right? And there's also some really um, interesting StatCast data that you kind of uncovered and wrote about yesterday showing that basically Andrew McCutcheon is really good at going back into the right. Like something JFK, back <laughs> into the right. Um, but to not his, really anywhere else. So to his right, to which, his right. which means to left field, basically, yeah. as a center fielder. So the way we looked at this is uh, if you think about every batted ball, there's a hang time 
and there's a distance. And that's probably the two most important things uh, for an outfielder in terms of whether you should catch that ball, right? If a ball is 70 feet away, it makes a big difference whether you have two seconds to get to that ball or 10 seconds to get to that ball. So it's not just about distance. It's not just about hang time. It's both. And if you have that, you can kind of put a catch percentage to it uh, across all of the major leagues. So you can say, well, that ball should be caught 70% of the time, or that ball is an out 99% of the time, whatever the case may be. So we looked at these hits uh, you know, for center fielders uh, with a catch rate between 25% and 75%. So basically the middle 50%, uh, we threw out the 25% that are almost always catches and the other 25% that are almost always outs because they don't really tell you that much because you know those are almost guaranteed outcomes. This is the middle 50%, which really allows an outfielder to stand apart from one another. And as you were saying, we looked at McCutcheon's catch rate and on those balls where, where he made the catches, almost always to left field, to his right. And maybe that says a little bit about what direction he's better going in because if you're playing, let's say, right field you're closer to the line, that's the direction you're actually going to go catch more balls in. And, you know, it's not, a, it's not an exact one-to-one ratio. The ball moves a little differently to the corners, obviously. But uh, I think it's, it's interesting to see that he might be a good fit in right field there because even though he's got the weakest arm of all those outfielders, and that's not what you think of for a right fielder, there is some evidence that might be the right move for them to make. Yeah, uh, particularly if, if, he, if he stays put, that is. Of course, if he stays now, put. there's now the rumors that he could get treated, and you know what? Let's make up some fake trades because I love fake trades. Okay. Um, and I'm not talking about, you know, talk radio. Hey, you know, George Costanza, let's get Griffey and Bonds in the Without same Without giving outfield. up too much. <laughs> I'm talking about legitimate fake trades um, or what could be real trades. So the first name Rosenthal mentioned, which makes a lot of sense, is the Nationals. Um, they don't really have a true center fielder. They played Trey Turner there, but they want to move him back to shortstop anyway. Um, so... They're also a win-now team. Again, but on that team, he plays center field. And they don't have the deepest farm season, but they could certainly make the deal happen if they wanted to. Yeah, I mean, that's it would be an interesting defensive outfield if you have Worth and McCutcheon next to each other in two of the positions. I Honestly, I like Turner better as a center fielder than a shortstop uh, because he's got really elite speed. I would be happy to see him play short, uh, center field for the rest of his career. Uh, but you're right, the Washington Nationals are a very good fit. Uh, the Mets, I think, are a pretty good fit. Our friend Dave Cameron brought this up yesterday about maybe – making a deal around Michael Conforto for McCutcheon because, you know, as you mentioned, Cespedes is great for the Mets lineup, but they have a really weird outfield configuration now where he's a right-handed hitter who really should never play center. He's got to be their left fielder. But then Jay Bruce is a left-handed hitter who can't really play center. Granderson's a left-handed hitter who can't really play center. Conforto's a left-handed hitter who can't really play center. It's a very awkward configuration. So you trade, let's say, Bruce to Toronto or Baltimore or wherever. Maybe you trade Conforto in a package for McCutcheon. All of a sudden, you've got an outfield that looks like Cespedes, McCutcheon, Granderson, let's say, and now you got something going. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly, if you and that's if you expect McCutcheon, sorry, bat to kind of pick up, maybe not to 2013 level, but maybe a little bit better than he was he was last year. Where else? Uh, the Dodgers were were mentioned as, but a th- th- he wouldn't be a center fielder there. No, Jock Peterson would probably still play center field, so he'd have to move to one of the corners, uh, which makes sense because they're you know Reddick has already signed with Houston, and who knows what Puig is going to be. Tolls is a really nice story, but probably not going to be a regular outfielder yet. Trace Thompson looked good, but he got hurt. They could use some certainty in at least one of those outfield corners. And the thing about McCutcheon is he signed one of those t- kind of club-friendly deals when he was three years away from free agency. So I think two for twenty-eight. I yeah, think which is, what's is left. you know, it's almost nothing. <laughs> it's basically what Cespedes is making for one year. That's right. <laughs> That's right. And, and it's important to say, even though McCutcheon had a, a poor year by his standards. Uh, really hit the ball well over the last two months of the season. So if that was a health thing, it just gives you a little more confidence going forward uh, that he can be what he once was, even though, you know, the defense is a huge question mark. Go ahead. 
I was going to say, I want to move on to... Oh, that's I was going to say that. Great. <laughs> I want to move on to another outfielder whose name is coming up in trade talks. J.D. Martinez. J.D. Martinez, I find to be incredibly fascinating. Here's one thing that's interesting. There's been a lot of talk recently about the different flavors of wins above replacement. You know, there's the Fangrass version and the baseball reference version and the prospectus version uh, and how they can measure similar guys in a very different way. Like Sam Miller at ESPN wrote a really interesting piece about Robbie Ray, who looks like a star or a scrub or an average player, depending on which flavor of war you want to use. So when I look at J.D. Martinez... And I see that over the last two seasons, fan graphs and baseball reference have been pegged exactly to the decimal point as the same player. I think that's interesting. But what's sidebar for a second, uh, just to explain the difference between the two, and you can correct me if I'm getting this wrong, fan graphs, the, you usually see bigger differences when, when it comes to pitchers because yes. they're, you, they're going based on FIP, which is... M- the three true outcomes, yes. basically. Strikeouts, walks, home runs. It doesn't matter. You know, They're trying to eliminate the effects of defense, the bullpen, just the, the sequencing that happens. It's the stuff that a pitcher can control entirely. Uh, baseball reference goes the other way. It's about runs allowed, which you know is more of a what did happen as opposed to a what should have happened, but then you've obviously got a lot of other inputs there. So that's why with a guy like Robbie Ray with a huge strikeout rate, he's going to look a lot better in the Fangraphs flavor than in the baseball reference flavor. Because he allowed a ton of runs. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, according to FIP, he was an elite pitcher. Right. Whereas I feel like, I mean, baseball reference uses defensive runs saved for position players. Fangraphs uses UZR, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, Yeah, the difference is more about defense. I don't think the offense is that different between the two, honestly. But the point is for J.D. Martinez, in 2015, he was viewed as an elite player, five wins above replacement. Uh, The scale there is two is roughly average, four is like all-star, and, you know, Mike Trout's usually like nine or whatever. So being a five-win player, really, really good. Last year, uh, a two-win player, and so that's about an average player. Here's what's interesting about that. He actually hit about the same in both seasons. In 2015, uh, a 137 weighted runs created plus, where 100 is average. 2016, a 142 weighted runs created plus. He's actually slightly better, uh, but if you look at war, he collapsed his value by more than half. Now, why is that? Two reasons. One is that war is a counting stat, and uh, he did miss a lot of time with a broken elbow. He had 140 fewer plate appearances, so that was always going to hurt his total. Uh, but the other thing is his defense. His defensive runs saved went from plus four in 2015 to minus 22 in 2016. That is an enormous, I mean, that's that's almost three wins of difference right there. That accounts for the entire jump or, or drop from five to two. So that opens up a whole bunch of questions because, as you mentioned, he is a trade candidate. The Tigers have said they're kind of open for business. Uh, we've heard him linked to the Mets, heard him linked to the Dodgers, or heard him linked to the Giants where he'd be a wonderful fit in left field. But if you're a National League team and you're trading for J.D. Martinez, you really have to wonder, who is J.D. Martinez? Is he the slightly above average fielder in 2015? Or was he the total mess in 2016? There's a lot of questions I'm, there. I'm probably going to take – I'm going to lean more towards – 2016, just because he's had some injury woes, and I feel like that, you know, he's also not, he was a late bloomer, so he's not that young. Um, so, but. I, I guess the question for me is, I agree that he is he's a below average outfielder. The question is, is he a below average outfielder, or is he a horrendous outfielder, right? And there's there's a gap. You With that bat, you can live with below average defense. But if he's just, like, taking up most of his value away, even with the bat, that's a question you have to ask, like, what kind of overall package are you getting? And I think that's what we're seeing a lot more in terms of, like, modern-day roster construction is, like, where these types of players become, can become real albatrosses on NL teams. Guys who basically can only play one position and have nowhere to go on the defensive spectrum. Because then once the bat goes, then it's like, 
they really have no value. Right. Right. So it's like now he's not a long term deal. But I think he's only got one more year left after yes, this that's year. That's part maybe of why two. he's going to be having trades. He's yeah. one of the, believe it or not, one of the biggest possible free agents for next year. Next year's right. free agent class is not all that impressive. So you you would be making a huge investment. As I guess that's right. If right. you're an NL team, you're only trading for a year. But, and the bat is legit. I mean, there's yeah. no argument about that. So just looking at him kind of in the same way we did McCutcheon, uh, I looked at all the balls that were hit to him that had a 75% or higher catch percentage, right? These are balls that are out, uh, you know, three quarters of the time or higher. He had 14 uncaught balls in his direction that should have been outs uh, 75% of the time or higher. And if you look at the spread here, and you can't look at it because it's a podcast, but I can look at it, uh, most of them were over his head towards the wall. It really looked like he had some kind of aversion uh, towards going to the wall, uh, which I thought was interesting. Now compare this to Mookie Betts, and I realize this is unfair. Mookie Betts is not average. Mookie Betts is elite. He had only two uncaught balls, 75% or higher. Well, it would suggest that probably, just guessing, <laughs> average would probably have six or seven such balls. And Martinez is on the low end and Betts is on the high end. Right, and so that's that's the question. Like we, need, I would need to watch the video of those and say, were those balls that he like? Did they hit? Did they hit him in the glove and he just dropped them? Was he slow? Did he take bad routes? Uh, did the wind take it? It could be any number of things. Obviously, we need to do more research on it. But it stands out to me. I think I'm kind of on the same page as you, leaning towards actually not a good outfielder. And so that is an impact on his trade value. To me, I mean, it, he seems like a perfect fit for the Blue Jays. They're going to lose Encarnacion. They're going to lose Batista. Probably Saunders. They, I mean, it just it makes all sorts of sense. For, you know, they, he's not going to cost so much in trade, particularly for one year, that, that any team could basically swing a trade for J.D. Martinez. Is he an, is he an outfielder for Toronto? Because now they have Kendris Morales, who's probably that's their true. DH. That's a good point. So, I mean, I guess Joey Batista wasn't a great outfielder either. <laughs> so, anyway, the bat will fit on any team. It's the defense that's a big question. Uh, and then the third outfielder I think we should talk about. He's not coming up in trade rumors, but we're going to talk about him anyways. Adam Jones, who I find fascinating because he uh, he's a guy I look at who could be the next Dexter Fowler, right? We just talked about it. Dexter Fowler moved back. His numbers looked better. Uh, Adam Jones, notoriously, for like a decade now, has been one of the shallowest center fielders in baseball. And you've always been able to eyeball that. Now we have the stats, and I can tell you, 90 center fielders had a thousand tracked, were on the field for a thousand tracked pitches last year. He played 307 feet away from home, tied for 88th Andrew McCutcheon tied for 89th. Michael Taylor was the shallowest. Basically, these guys are essentially tied for within a couple inches as being these shallowest center fielders. Now, why is that important? Because Adam Jones had a negative 11, I think, defensive run saved. And because Baltimore does not have a strikeout pitching staff, they give up a lot of hits, and they give up a lot of balls to the outfield other than Zach Britton, and their defense in the outfield was the worst in baseball. Um, there's one, point, one thing I want to just mention on that, just to give a little context. On the flip side, just to give you a sense of what the deepest center fielders play, the deepest center fielders are a little more than 330 feet away. So it's actually a really one. Of the, this is actually one of the more interesting things that I discovered this year from Sadcast is how big the gap is. Right. In the corners, you see a gap from the shallowest to deepest of like 10 to 15 feet, but in center field, it's 20, 25 feet. Yeah, and and you know you, that will vary, I guess, if you also look at it uh, as like percentage of the way because. Home plate is always in the same place the wall isn't. Yes, so Colorado, sure. the guys who play in Coors Field are almost always among the deepest just because that outfield is so big. If you look at left fielders, you know, whoever's playing left field uh, at Fenway Park is always going to be the shallowest there at Houston. So there's a bit of extra context that needs to go in there. But that's kind of a quick snapshot. This pretty much uh, shows who's playing very deep and playing very shallow, and that passes the smell test. Here's really something interesting I want to tell you about the Baltimore outfield defense, though. Tied for 30th with the Tigers, partially because of J.D. Martinez, in defensive runs saved, right? Last. 30th in ultimate zone rating, last. First in fielding percentage, first. 
And that's amazing. And that tells me two things. One is that fielding percentage is absolutely useless and never, ever use it. But the second thing it tells me is that they were sure-handed. They didn't make a lot of errors. They just didn't get to anything. They had no range whatsoever. At the same time, also, how many, like... In this day and age, how many errors do outfielders make in the I, year? I actually looked up this morning. The outfield uh, for the Orioles made two errors all year long, and I think the worst team made, I don't know, 19 or something like that. So it's not a huge spread, but it does show you don't use fielding percentage <laughs> ever. Anyway, as far as Baltimore goes, uh, their outfield defense is going to take a big step up because they're probably not going to have Mark Trumbo in right field, who's a slugger but not much of an outfielder. They could also push Adam Jones back. Maybe it's too late in his career to think about that, but you know, you've got these guys who are allowing balls in play. Other than Britain not getting a ton of grounders, maybe it works. You know, everybody wants to copy the champion, and certainly the Cubs <laughs> proved something there. And in the other direction, the Pirates proved pulling somebody in doesn't necessarily work. Fair point. <laughs> All right, I think we've, uh, we've, we've talked enough about outfielders. So there's a couple other free agents, uh, or soon-to-be free agents, that we should talk about. The first one is uh, StatCast hero Chris Carter who I think we talked about a lot last year, too. Chris Carter uh, reportedly is going to get non-tendered by the Brewers at the end of the week. That's because they brought back Eric Thames from Korea, and uh, they didn't want to pay Carter uh, something like $10 million in arbitration, right? Well, it's possible that he could get traded. Possibly could get traded. Um, so, but, but he's not going to be on the Brewers next season. No, he's not. They basically made that clear, which to me, on a separate note, is a little odd that they would basically make this decision now. Like, at the very least, you could find someone to trade. To basically announce we don't want him well, seems weird. I don't know. That that reads to me like they tried to, like for weeks, make a trade and couldn't. You know, I don't think they're telling anybody something they don't know. But anyway, I, I think it's interesting because Chris Carter uh, is going to get essentially cut, right? He's going to be a free agent, and he is without question a flawed player. Not a good defender, strikes out a ton, but he hit 41 home runs Dingers. last year. Who does that remind you of? Uh, Mark Trumbo, right? Mark Trumbo. Strikes out a ton, hit a bunch of homers last year, not a good defender. And they very similar ages. I think Trumbo is one year older. And, uh, you know, if you look at the stats over the last couple of years, they are like the identical player, right? I, this is my favorite thing ever. Over the last four seasons, so 2013 to 2016, they have just about the exact same amount of plate appearances. Uh, just a, a difference of nine plate appearances in four years. We're talking about over 2,200 plate appearances here. They each slugged 470. How perfect is like that? Literally 470. Literally 470. Uh, you know, uh, 131, 131 homers for Carter, 117 homers for Trumbo. Weighted runs created plus Carter 113, Trumbo 109. Basically both worth four wins above replacement because, again, neither has a lot of defensive value. Uh, if you look at the 2017 steamer projections, they're pretty much identical. 34 homers for Carter, 31 for Trumbo, uh, 106 weighted runs created plus versus 109. One win players. Now I'll grant that Trumbo is a better defensive first baseman. He can at least fake it in the outfield where Carter can't. So he's a better player, but Trumbo's going to get, what, $60 million and cost a first-round draft pick? What are you going to get Carter for? One year and, I don't know, $8 million, something like that? It's, the valuation of this is really out of whack to me. He's going to be the bargain of the offseason. I think the Orioles make perfect. They, they did it with Nelson Cruz, brought him in on a one-year deal, basically let him rebuild his value. He went and signed elsewhere. They just did it with Mark Trumbo last year, brought him in on a one-year deal, let him sign elsewhere. Like, to me, it's like... It's a match made in heaven. Also, you know, like... The, the Rockies, for me. That's where I want... They, their first base may be the worst first base position in baseball right now. That's a team that's better than people think. I want to see a guy who can already hit 500-foot home runs, and I want him at Coors Field 81 times a year. Just for it, entertainment. It, it would be fun. I mean, again, he, he would... You know, they... We, we joked in a past podcast about how, like, uh, Mark Reynolds is the, the off-brand Mark Trumbo. That's right. Um, maybe... Chris Carter is basically the on-brand Mark Trumbo, as we're saying. Right. Well, and, and what this says to me is, I like Chris Carter... Um, but I don't, I'm not saying I think Chris Carter is a $60 million player 
by any means whatsoever. It does say to me I'm a little bit worried for Mark Trumbo's market. If you can make this comparison this easily, and he's got that qualifying offer over his head, he might not get the contract that people think he might. Because I think, you know, we've seen in this day and age, uh, this package just isn't valued as much as it used to be. Remember last year, what did Mark Trumbo cost? They had to throw in a relief pitcher in order to get a backup catcher, right? That was the trade for, and, for Clevenger. And the one thing that this free agent class does have is is power. power. Like, if, you, if you're going to be spending on the high end, you're going for an Encarnacion. Obviously, Cespedes off the market, so Encarnacion. But there's still yeah, Batista's Batista. out there. There's still Trumbo. There's most likely going to be Chris Carter's or yeah, someone. Uh, Justin Turner is still Turner. out there. Um, so there's power. I mean, even Ian Desmond, you know, will hit hit some homers. Yeah. So it's a, it's a rough off season to be Mark Trumbo, I guess, which is weird because he just hit 47 home runs and led baseball in dingers. Uh, so that's interesting to me. I'm fascinated to see where he ends up. I mean, it could be sort of like a Daniel Murphy situation last year, where Daniel Murphy was coming off a good year with the Mets, not like a great year, but it was a good year. But he sort of was. It was a good year, but a great finish. Yes. Like, that but put the, him on the map. Exactly. Exactly. So, like, there was a lot of buzz around going into the free agent season. But teams, once it kind of – I mean, granted, this was they didn't know 2016 Daniel Murphy existed yet. They sort of, like, as the winter went on, they were kind of like, well, like, his track record is pretty just okay, and there are alternatives on the market. And, you know, you know the, the Nationals basically lucked into getting him on a three-year deal after Brendan Phillips turned them down. Daniel Murphy could probably uh, have zero hits in his next 1,000 plate appearances, and that's still a good contract based on what he did this year. Oh, no, uh, no question. Uh, the last guy I want to talk about is the unquestioned best starting pitcher on the market, and it still sounds weird to say that Rich Hill is the unquestioned best starting pitcher on the market. 15 months ago, he was a, in independent league baseball. He's just the best story in the entire world. Um, you know, there's a lot of places he could fit, but if you look at uh, the four suitors, according to ESPN's Jim Bowden, who are most heavily in Yankees, Dodgers, Rangers, and Astros, right? And you can make a good case, I think, for any of those places. Obviously, he's familiar with the Dodgers. But the Astros kind of stand out to me because, uh, you know, a couple of reasons. They've been a really aggressive team, obviously, so far. You know, they signed Reddick, They traded for McCann. They got Charlie Morton. But they still probably need another starting pitcher. Keiko didn't have a good year and got hurt. McCullers I love, but he got hurt too. They need help in the rotation, right? Yeah. I also think they're going to sign Encarnacion, but that's a separate story. Well, I, I, I also, unrelated, think they should uh, trade for Joey Votto. But that's a different topic for another time. But anyway, uh, so he would be a, a great fit there. But there's another reason he'd be a good fit there, and not just because of his performance. We all know the Rich Hill story is about curveballs, right? He's got a very high spin curveball. Uh, his, his average spin rate last year was over 2,800 RPMs, and that was fourth among the 51 pitchers who threw at least 300. And uh, he threw his curveball essentially 50% of the time, right? It's a 50-50 split curveball fastball. It's the highest curveball usage on record dating back to 2008. He's the king of curveballs. And the reason I think that's interesting in Houston is because Houston has really shown an inclination for curveball pitchers. You know, if you look at their monthly curveball uses last year, it went up and up and up. It was about 10% in April, uh, and it was uh, about 14% by the end of the year. Charlie Morton didn't throw that many pitches last year because he got hurt. But when he did, he was top five in curveball spin with almost 3,000 RPM. I mean, that's elite curveball spin. It's pretty easy to see why they wanted him. This is the organization that went out and got Colin McHugh a couple years ago because they like his curveball spin. Lance McCullers, obviously, his amazing curveball spin. If they're interested, as is being reported, he fits there for so many different reasons. Yeah, and I think even you know in this day and age, teams have opened up their minds about pitchers and how they prepare and their pitch, you know, pitch repertoires and all that stuff. That said, a pitcher like Rich Hill is still a little bit outside the box in terms of the amount he throws his curves. So it would make sense that he would also be inclined to go to a, go to a club that's not going to try and tinker and just be like, hey, this is what you do. 
keep doing what you do. They will value that. Yes. And you're right. And they wouldn't try to change that, and they'll probably help them work with that. You know, I, I think a lot of these teams make sense. The Dodgers obviously make sense. Uh, the Yankees, I think, are a little bit of an interesting fit. But Rich Hill and the Astros, I, I think I'm talking myself into it. It makes perfect sense for so many reasons. The Yankees make sense because then they could do the other Petrello plan and put Pineda in the bullpen where he would be lights they out. They should. Michael Pineda was one of my number one picks for the next uh, Andrew Miller guy uh, who, you know, he's a two-pitch pitcher, throws hard, doesn't really have a lot of success. He should be in the bullpen. You heard it here first, but it's not going to happen because they have about one and a half healthy starting pitchers. Uh, so that's our show. The hot stove season is really exciting for this kind of stuff, and I'm hopeful by this time next week uh, we'll actually be in the winter meetings. We'll have some motion on some more trades, and we'll have a lot more stuff to talk about. For sure. All right. This has been our show. I am Mike Petriello. He's Matt Myers. Join us next week on the MLB.com StatCast podcast.